Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 243 of the National Security Law Podcast. 243. Oh man. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Monday night, November 27th, 2023. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Bobby, where are you, where are you taking me to dinner? <laughs> I mean, I mean unless, unless we basically out. record, I mean, by my calculation, there are 34 days left in the year. And oh, we would basically need to record, oh, just about every day um, um, for you to win the bet at this point. You know, with world events, the way they sometimes are, it is possible. But so I'm not I'm not ready to concede our bet <laughs> yet. But I am interested in, you know, what restaurants you have found interesting you've been itching hmm, to go to. Interesting. We, we, yeah. we will discuss. Uh, maybe our Austin listeners can start suggesting places to, to – uh, to, to serve as an appropriate uh, uh, vindication of the bet. Places where Bobby and Heather must take Steve and Karen to dinner. Yep. yep. I mean, that's that's how this was going, man. <laughs> um, I was so sure early in the year what what a difference time makes. You can just say I was right. That's fine. Um, You're not right yet. You're trending right. I'll tell you that. I mean, I don't hear that. I don't hear that very often. Um, so um, the the other joke I was going to make is it's been literally like today is 60 days since we last recorded. Oh my I feel God. like there's a war powers resolution joke in there. <laughs> so like so our authority I had 48 hours left. I, c- I could have delayed another 48 hours before we recorded this episode. But I did not receive a, a war powers notification. <laughs> a podcast powers resolution. So your, your authority expires at the end of this podcast. Oh my god! Um, <laughs> you know this is actually apropos. You what know what? It, 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 it's okay. It's okay though because nothing has happened since September twenty eighth when Isn't last that we recorded. Yeah, we uh, we recorded late September. It was a couple of weeks ish before the horrific terrorist attacks that beset Israel on October seventh. Um, it has been quite a, a run since then. We are going to talk in a moment about a, I think, a sequence of legal issues. We'll kind of run through a, a wide variety of primarily international law issues, I think. Uh, but then that will eventually lead us around to the United States using force, and we'll have mm. some domestic law issues there, Article 2, AUMF, war powers type discussion about U.S. uses of force of late in Syria and Iraq. And then just, you know, because there's always something there, we will journey to Trumplandia. Steve, what will we talk about when we get to Trumplandia? I mean, there have been a bunch of interesting developments in Trumplandia. Um, the two that I really want to talk about are the gag order litigation arising out of the criminal prosecution in D.C. So this is the sort of January 6th specific criminal prosecution, or at least the federal version. There's also a state one. Um but also um, the the proceedings that have unfolded rather quickly in the at least Colorado state litigation um, in the effort to disqualify President Trump from running for re-election under uh, Section Three of the Fourteenth Amendment. So, you know, um, good times. And, and Bobby, it's been so long since we recorded, we didn't even get to talk about the the Speaker Palooza. Oh my! Did we miss that whole thing? We missed all Speaker Palooza. How many? How many almost speakers did we miss? Hmm. I have to go back and check Elise Stefanik's tweets because she kept a, she kept a, she kept <laughs> crowning people. It was like the kiss of death. That's amazing. It's like Sports Illustrated cover jinx for the yes. for the older ones out there. You know what I'm talking about? 
Uh, with Trumplandia, I guess we, we, we're we not even going to get to something that we probably will come back to later on, depending on how things go, this this sort of uh, frisson of discussion about some comments he made that got people thinking about the oh, Insurrection God. Act and so forth. And vermin, and, right? And, his, his opponents are vermin. Did he, Oh, I'm, I'm, I think I may have missed that. But that's oh, yeah. A, yeah, that that's was a, a good pretty, one. That's a pretty damn loaded word. Uh-huh. So uh, we will, because it's in the spirit of the show, we will do frivolity. Despite this, you know, most of the time our topics are not serious. very frivolous. Yeah. These, these these feel, Steve. These feel, especially our our first set of topics surrounding Israel. These are maybe more serious than uh, than is even our usual norm in the show. I agree. Um, but but by the time we get around to the end, I think it'll be. We'll we divert to some frivolity as we typically do at the end of the so show. So just as a preview, the, the, the topic for frivolity is what are the five greatest holiday songs and why are all of them uh, Christmas Baby Please Come Home by Darlene Love? <laughs> that's, that's so wrong. Almost as wrong. At, well, I don't know if it's wrong or right or what, but we also have got to talk about what looks like the contract terms on AM's new football coach. Can we include that? Oh, hey, wait a second. You're my boss. Hey, can you please can you please pay me seventy five million dollars to not do my job anymore? You know, I, I've had some similar offers that relate to that. <laughs> <You'll>... <laughs> These jokes, they write themselves. Yeah, no, that's 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 fair. Some yeah. kind of donor buyout. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, maybe there's a conservative out there who really just doesn't want me to warp in on the young minds anymore, and so is willing to pay top dollar for it. What is, what is, is 75, 75 M the, the dollar figure? I mean, if it's good enough for Jimbo. Uh, you, you, I, honestly, I think they'd have to pay me a lot more. Can I just say, I mean, can we just, I, I just, I, I realize that it's not actually public money, but like the visual of a public university paying its head football coach $75 million so that it can fire him is really, I, I, anyway. The, the visuals definitely. I mean, we'll we'll come back. Let's yes. let's save this. We'll table it. Yes. Um. Yes. I I think we agree, but uh, you know, I, I think right. I think I think the end of our frivolity tonight is going to be tough for Aggies and Aggie fans. Well, I, hey, if you're an Aggie fan, it's like, look, the the long reign of pain maybe maybe is over. Surely this time it'll be better. Hey, I can relate. Were you T fans that been there, my friends? And sometimes we've you do never need paid five million dollars to fire somebody. No, no, no. There we have not been. That's right. Uh, all right. All right. Okay. Um, let's. Okay. Now, getting serious. We're gonna we're gonna talk um, about an array of topics. And, and Steve, we didn't, I, as usual, we didn't pre-plan this. Um, I had sort of a general sense of thinking that we could go a bit chronologically. You use the chronology a little bit to kind of check in on spotting the issues and sharing a few thoughts on, on them as we go. Does that seem like a reasonable way to proceed or I'm happy to do it a different way if you have a different idea? No, I, I think that's fine. I think that's probably, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll hold on to my editorial comments for later. Oh yeah. Well, you know, spice, spice the meal up as we go. Yeah, fair with enough. The, the, the sideline comments. So I, I don't know from a spot, the legal issues perspective and then discuss them that there's a lot of, interesting things to say surrounding the the attacks on october 7th itself um, I, have, I have one question for you what if is you it? if it is possible to distinguish and this is actually a question that got a lot of airtime after 9 11 if it is possible to distinguish between hamas's attacks on idf bases and hamas's attacks on civilian populations 
is there any argument that Hamas was acting consistently with the relevant you know norms and laws of war by attacking you know the sort of the 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 flagged military base of the power that it believes it's at war with. So that's that's a great question. I think that is the one that you've probably put your finger on the one sort of interesting thing to talk about here. So I think it will be common ground between us that the the gross immorality and illegality and and you name it of of attacking civilians intentionally and hostage taking and and and, and the rapes, murders, the hostage yes. taking every yes. single bit of it yes is is, is beyond the pale and yes. there's and there should be no apologizing Good. for it okay so there there um, I mean, it's kind and, of crazy that like that is not a point of universal assent right now but you and i, I agree i know i know it's it's upsetting yes. now as to uh, i think it's interesting to draw the comparison to a topic we've talked about on the show a lot early on which is going back to the uh, positions the u.s government took uh, about what was a war crime and what wasn't in relation to uh, persons captured in Afghanistan or elsewhere in the heyday of the war with Al-Qaeda and associated forces. And, and one thing that came up early on is the United States began uh, generating through the military commission process positions, U.S. government positions on what various war crimes might be. There was some stuff that was or at least should have been uncontroversial, such as designating intentional attacks on civilians as a war crime, which of course it is. Um, But there was controversy because the U.S. government position, early on at least, uh, Steve, am I remembering correctly that the government in the military commission process was taking the position that uh, using uh, attacking U.S. forces when you as the attacker were not an, an... a lawful combatant, that is, you're not you're not in uniform, et cetera. Right, um, carrying arms openly. Didn't just mean that you were subject to ordinary criminal prosecution, which is common ground. I think everyone agrees that, you know, if you're not a lawful combatant, then the right. whole point is at a minimum, you don't have combat immunity for your which is which is acts. which is the Hamadellan case. Right. But but the US government, I think early on was taking the position that you no, know, using using force without the privilege was in and of itself that's correct. an actual war crime. And I and I think you and I have long agreed that that's not correct, or at least I think that's Cer- certainly that was certainly that that was not an accurate statement of the laws of war as they were then understood. I mean, there are folks out there, including then DC Circuit Judge Brett Kavanaugh, who argued that the U.S. has the right to participate in the evolution that's right, right of the laws that's of right. war, but certainly at least as it was widely understood, circa two thousand and two. The mere fact that you were an unprivileged belligerent engaging in hostilities was not per se a war crime. Right. And, and please, everyone listening carefully, note that doesn't mean you don't get prosecuted. Right. It means that you, when prosecuted and for ordinary charges of ordinary murder, battery, et cetera, yep. um, have no defense in the nature of, but it was a war and I was a combatant. You don't have and, that. And, and, I, right, and, I, and I said this briefly, but this was the heart of the matter in the Hamadullin case in the Eastern District of Virginia in the Fourth Circuit. Yeah. But you raise a really good point that um, in part because of the position the U.S. government was taking, it, could that have muddied the water going forward by, by beginning to generate something that in theory, could crystallize into a, a new understanding. And I, I guess I'd say that uh, from a, just a pure international law formation perspective, I think we can at least say that 
even if something process like that has been put in motion as a possibility, it hasn't crystallized yet. I agree. I agree. No, no. So, so, right. So, so the, what Hamas did on October 7th was illegal, right? And what you it mean did- You mean as the attacks on- As the attacks on IDF bases, right? And that what it did with regard to civilians was not just illegal, but was, was I think, without question, a violation of international law and the IHL specifically, as it's long been understood. So in practical terms, it's all prosecutable, murder, yes. et cetera. Yes. Um, and then as to the civilians, it's an additional layer yep. of international uh, uh, of law of armed conflict violation and war crime. And you arguably probably don't have that claim as to particular uses of force if they were carried out without perfidy or some other uh, element. As opposed uh, to, for example, that part of the 9-11 attacks, which was at, directed at the Pentagon, because even if the Pentagon's a lawful military target, the way the attack was carried out was not exactly through, you know, soldiers carrying arms openly. So interesting. Okay. Anyway, okay. Yeah. So then, then I think the next analytical question is Israel's right to defend itself. Right. Um, which I, to me... Uh, now, I know that there's some discussion about, was there a pre-existing state of ongoing armed conflict such that you don't even actually need that analysis right. any more than you would, you know, in a, in a conventional war setting where it's like, you know, it's the or third attacks Camp Chapman, for example, in Afghanistan, three years into the conflict, right? right? So, so there is a view, but setting that aside, uh, even if that's not the right analysis, um, and I, I don't really have a strong view on that right now, not having studied that issue very closely. But uh, it, I don't. I think it's very clear that the, an armed attack on Israel occurred. Yes, and and that the Article Fifty One, the inherent right recognized in Article Fifty One of the UN Charter of Self Defense, was implicated as a result. It was made available if necessary to rely on it. I, I, I mean, I completely agree. Okay. <sighs> then the next analytical question becomes right. To what extent does IHL constrain Israel's otherwise just right? So, so the use ad bellum question I think is pretty easy, right? That that Israel ha- whether there was already an existing state of hostilities between Hamas and Israel or just one that existed as of the early morning hours of October seventh, right? The use ad bellum question I think is pretty straightforward. What, what about necessity and proportionality right. in the nature? If it has to be an Article fifty one self defense scenario, it's got to be necessary and proportionate. Um, I feel like this has been one locus of criticism of Israel that right. is the claim, I, I think, not so much on the necessity side. Well, right, but I think we should break them apart. I think we should break them apart, right? The necessity, I think, any any possible debate about necessity, I think, is, you know, mooted by the hostage taking, right? Because and not to mention the rockets, right? Right. And the continuing and the continuing rocket fire right into Israel. Um you know, so I I, I want to say like I, I think the proportionality question, whether fr- whether framed in use ad bellum terms, Bobby, or in use in bellow terms, right? I I I'm perfectly willing to be persuaded that Israel has acted in ways that are at least in some respects disproportionate. I mean, I you know I I have no love lost for Netanyahu here, and I I I think there's at least some evidence that some of Israel's response has been you know excessive. The problem is is that that does not make the response per se unlawful, right? That I mean, like this is, you know, if if the United States, if one U.S. soldier during World War II committed a war crime, that did not make the entire U.S. military effort during World War II unlawful. So one way of, if I'm hearing you right, you're saying that um, there may be one more, maybe many 
particular use of for or particular actions IDF yeah. has taken that may themselves be problematic pursuant to one of the rules we're going to talk about in a minute. Yep. Um, but you're not persuaded that makes the overall response disproportionate in particular. I mean, I, I will just say, I think it is really hard to look at what Hamas did and was still doing after the attacks themselves and argue with a straight face that Israel didn't have the right to take extensive military action to quell the ongoing threat Hamas faced and to, you know, find a way to get the hostages back. I think I think that's right. There's an analogy here to the United States and what it did in the aftermath of 9-11 in Afghanistan and, and beyond, where there's a lot of famously many very specific questions of like, but you particularly did this and that is legally problematic or it could be a subject to debate. But that doesn't mean that the effort to uh, eliminate Al-Qaeda uh, to destroy its functionality and to topple uh, the Afghan Taliban en route to that were themselves somehow disproportionate. I, I think a lot of listeners who, who are concerned, whose, whose locus of concern is the, the civilian death toll in Gaza, might be hearing this saying like, well, how can you say it's, it's proportionate? And I think it's important to emphasize that proportionality shows up in two places in the law of war. And we, we really haven't gotten to the perhaps possibly more relevant one. Uh, proportionality, as we're talking about it here, is a measure of the, of the general right of self-defense in the aftermath of an armed attack, as, as we've been talking about. Um, and, and what's weighing in the balance there in part is, is whether it's, if, if you conclude it's necessary in response to the armed attack, to, to fully uh, destroy the, the combat capability, the violence capability of Hamas. Um, and given where Hamas has embedded itself and, and how it is hiding itself amidst the civilian population, um, th- that I think certainly the Israeli position, I think you and I agree, uh, renders the, the use of force to go in on the ground proportionate. That doesn't mean the other proportionality is always satisfied. And we're going to talk in a second about particular uses of force where it is foreseeable. And you can see that there's going to be civilian harm from that particular airstrike, that particular use of force. And and it could be that for, I recognize not everyone's going to agree with what I just said earlier about the, the Article 51 proportionality analysis. Um, but I think a lot of the, the concern about legality as it applies to just the sheer number of civilians, you know, I don't claim to know what the right number there is, but it, it does seem to be a very large number. Um, that that is something probably best addressed through the lens of the means and methods rules that talk about distinction right. and proportionality. The problem is, I mean, there was a statistic today that some IDF spokesperson said that like by their estimate, somewhere around 80% of the casualties in Gaza have been non-combatants, Right. But like, and that's a horrifying statistic, Bobby, but out of context, it is impossible to say, ergo, Israel's response is disproportionate, right? I mean, you know, in, in the circumstances in which Hamas is using civilian hospitals as bases of operations, right, in which it's using civilians as human shields, like, that's horrifying, we ought to be able to distinguish between things that are horrifying and things that are you know, sort of per se a violation of rules that require a bit more nuance. That's right. Okay. So maybe next up in the sequence, um, there, there's a couple of things and they're worth teasing out, though they are related. Um, there's been some criticism of Israel's 
uh, warning to civilians to leave uh, northern Gaza, to leave Gaza City. And some have, so it's been framed by some as a, in effect, a deportation order or a, a civilian population uh, movement directive. When you frame it that way, that sounds problematic. The other way to frame it is advance warning of attack, which advance warning of attack uh, to civilians is not just something that's permitted, but it's actually something required when the situation makes that feasible, when you foresee that your attack may affect the civilian population. Steve, do you have a view on on the right way to interpret the warning uh, that the attack is imminent, the encouragement slash directive to civilians to get out of the, the area? I mean, I you know, I no, I, I agree with what you said. Yeah, I mean, the the complicating factor, and and I, you know, to be clear, I don't think either one of us is so expert on the particulars of exactly how things have unfolded to take a really firm position on the factual application. There's there is a complicating question. If you give a warning, is it have you as the warning party have you taken any actions that would prevent reasonably prevent compliance? Right. Uh, with like, in other words, if you give the warning, say you've, you've all got to get out there, but we are also at the same time going to close all roads. Right. I, I don't know that that is a fair description of how it unfolded, but I think there's been some discussion about whether some of the facts on the ground have, have been of that variety. And that's, well, I think and, it's an and, important question. And I think it's clear. I mean, I think it is clear that there was a period of time where the border crossing into Egypt was closed. Right. I think what's less clear is whether that was at the behest of or force of the IDF, or if that was because of other conditions, including perhaps Hamas not not uh, you know agreeing to it. I mean, I, again, like I, I think there's. I mean, this is something I want to talk about in a bit, but like I think there's just folks are jumping to so many conclusions in a context in which the facts are very gray. Right. Um, right. To say the least. And I mean, like the, you know, the sort of the the apparent wayward rock, Hamas rocket that blew up the hospital, right? And like everyone was, was it when it Islamic Jihad's rocket, maybe? I'm sorry. You're right. I'm sorry. Islamic Jihad's rocket. That was my, my right? See, even me. Which, right? was, even, which was immediately portrayed, you know, publicly right. as if it was an, an IDF, IDF airstrike. Right. right. <sighs> I yeah. Did, yeah. I just. Uh, <sighs> I think. Do you think? You, I think that this, yeah. the warning issue yeah. got intertwined with the siege or or uh, you know total cutoff question at the same time, and some of the feelings people had or views people had about the legality of um, I forget which minister was it the minister of defense who kind of came out of the box almost immediately uh, with yeah. extremely I think problematic language about cutting off all resources, fuel, food, water, et cetera. Um, you, so let's state the rule. And of course, I think it's, I think it's quite clear. You, you cannot, as a means or method of warfare, starve the civilian population any more than you can, as a means or method of warfare, just decide to start killing civilians. But there's a starvation-specific rule. Um, the catch is, it, it, the debate is, whether and to what extent your intentions matter. In other words, if it's foreseeable that your efforts to starve out and cut off the enemy uh, combatants, if it foreseeably is going to have the effect of also having a similar impact on civilians, is that okay as long as that's not your actual goal? 
Or does it not really matter as long as you can foresee that that's the inevitable or likely consequence? Um, I think Tom Dannenbaum, whom we both know at, at yep, Fletcher, yep, I think, yep. has has been writing very compellingly about a more civilian protective approach where you're where it's more about the foreseeability, the, the anticipatable consequence. But well, I think and I think and, and, of- and and the availability of, of of less destructive alternatives, right? And and whether there are other means by which you can achieve the same valid military goals while having fewer while creating fewer civilian casualties. Well and, and I think I think Tom's conclusion is is a disputed one and there are plenty of people. And I think that uh I believe the piece that I think Sean Watts did for the Lieber Institute at West Point, they have an incredible series of posts in their articles of war blog, uh, just going over different topics. And I think Sean's piece took the other view or at least pointed out, I'm not sure he came down hard on this himself, but he said, look, there's, there are those, there are certainly a lot of people who would take the view that if it's not intended and it's incidental, um, that that is deeply unfortunate, but it's not illegal. So I think this is an area where a lot of the debate uh, where people seem to be shouting past one another. No kidding. They're not acknowledging that there's a dispute about exactly where the the key mens rea element in the uh, the law of our conflict lies. Can I add one more thing, which is another debate which we've talked about on the podcast before somewhat ad nauseum, is the debate over the intersection and interaction between international humanitarian law, i.e. the laws of war, and international human rights law. Mm. Right. And and so so I think there are there's at least some folks out there who are arguing that, you know, that there are contexts in which Israel is, quote, clearly violating international human rights law. Right. And contexts in which it's at least been the position of the United States that IHL is like specialis. Right. And IHRL doesn't apply. I I don't agree with that view. But the point is that 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 itself is also a matter of some dispute. Oh, for sure. I mean, this is so for those who aren't familiar with the Lex Specialis term, the idea is that um, you may have a situation in international law where there's uh, multiple bodies of international law that don't all have the same rules, and they might be thought to apply simultaneously, potentially. And you got to figure out how to deconflict the situation. Option one, um, uh, the more one option. The more specifically applicable rule set for the situation, the lex specialis, could control entirely such that you just turn off the other rule set. And so on that model, if it's an armed conflict situation and the law of armed conflict applies and you you just disregard otherwise applicable human rights law, a different view says, no, no, you have to harmonize them. And, and the way it works is that maybe lex specialis will set the, the baseline. But that insofar as you can raise the floor with human rights law from there in some way that's not incompatible fundamentally with what the law of armed conflict says, uh, then you you try to run both at the same time. Um, I think that is the view that is certainly, uh, that latter view is certainly more common internationally outside the United States and Israel. No, No question about that. Certainly, I think fair to say it's the most popular academic view. Um, but I think it's the longstanding view of the U.S. government, except for moments in which it's been. Uh, Steve, am I right in recalling that during the Obama administration, there was there was a bit of a push out of the State Department to uh, to modulate the U.S. Yes. position on this? But I don't think it ever quite overcame nope. what we can call interagency disagreements. Friction, a, you might say. Yes, yes, yes. Anyway, uh, so Israel I, certainly has that view too. I, I just want—I mean, I, I don't—I don't want this to come across as me making excuses for the for the IDF's behavior. I mean, I think some of the public statements have been 
indefensible. I think Netanyahu is, I, th- I mean, I've, I've thought he's terrible for a while. I think he has not exactly redeemed himself in any of his reactions. The point is just that the actual like international law questions, some of them are hard, um, right? And they're hard sort of well past the point at which Israel's being criticized. Like they're hard at like the margins. Yeah. Um, and, and there are contexts in which, you know, the, the legal questions actually aren't that hard, but it's still a complete tragedy that this is what's happening, right? Yeah, we and should so, all be able to, we should all be able to pause and recognize that all the loss of life. Yes. All loss of life in general, of course, is, is a tragedy at some level. Um, more specifically in this context, loss of innocent bystander life, suffering by innocent bystanders, all of that is, is a horrible tragedy. That, that doesn't tell us exactly what is lawful and what's not lawful. That's right. Those things well, aren't. And it also, and, 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 and framing it solely from the perspective of Israel bombed this thing today or Israel killed this many people today, ergo Israel's in the wrong, right? Takes Hamas completely off the hook for the extent to which its own decisions, its own behavior, right, is putting Palestine, peaceful, innocent Palestinian men, women, and children at risk. Absolutely. Um, right? Absolutely. And, you know, I, I just, I, I have been very, very troubled over the last, you know, six weeks by the number of people who I really would have thought knew better, who have just sort of lost their minds about the need for nuance in these conversations. Yeah, it's it's not been a shining moment for for reason discourse, and I, and and you know, just at some level, I get it. Uh, few few things could be spurring people's passions more, um, but it, but amongst lawyers and law students, yeah. of course, yeah. uh, you know, if no one else is looking to the nuances of the law, um, it's the job of the lawyers uh, to do that, and so. You know, we, apropos of that, we should know, of course, something we foreshadowed a moment ago, that one of the central questions for every single use of force is, is it compliant with the principles of distinction and proportionality? So let's, I'm sure most listeners know this, but not everyone will. So uh, the, I would argue that the two very most cardinal principles of the law of armed conflict when it comes to how force is used and how it's regulated in war, the use in bellow, um, first, the principle of distinction that as, as a default matter, civilians are not to be made the objects of attack. Civilian objects are not to be made the objects of attack. Um, just stopping there, this means you can't, as the goal of the attack, uh, intentionally go after civilians or civilian objects, unless, of course, um, they are, the civilian is directly participating in hostilities. And, and I, by the way, I don't think I've seen, we have not seen much in the way of claims of that variety. When civilians have been killed, I think it's it's almost entirely been discussed in terms of collateral damage, which goes to the second cardinal principle, which is that even if you're otherwise engaging a lawful objective, a military object or an individual who's properly targetable uh, in, in light of the principle of distinction, um, if the military advantage expected from that attack is, is going to be outweighed by the anticipated harm to civilian bystanders, um, then that violates the principle of proportionality. And as we were noting a little bit earlier, I think the place where the most interesting debates kind of could be had and maybe one day will be had in, in post hoc, you know, reconsiderations of what commanders knew and when they knew it, 
there may, it's not hard to imagine there may be instances where there are some tough questions there about what, here's the thing. It's about what the commander knew or reasonably should have known at the time of making the decision to attack. Right. And the ineffable difficulties of trying to balance the assessment of, okay, so we can get, we think we're going to get this Hamas military commander or this capability. Now the attack is likely to harm this many civilians. You know, there, there's not, you know, I think some people want there to be a, a mathematical formula, to just kind of plug in these, these factors and it yields an objective, clear answer. There's on the margins, a huge amount of debate. Even if you had perfect information, of course, you don't have perfect information and you can't fully judge it. Although it's not irrelevant, but you can't judge it simply by looking at the aftermath shows the following occurred. Again, you've got to know what the commander knew or reasonably should have known at the time. And all of us on the outside are in a poor position to judge that right now. That doesn't mean it's not right to raise questions and say, hey, there's a, a huge amount of civilian death toll um, by the IDF's own account. The percentages are really high. You know, is sufficient care being taken? I don't think you can jump to the conclusion that any one attack, however, clearly violated proportionality unless you know what the commander knew. Right. We have to, there's, there's a lot more we have to know. Um, let me just say one thing for folks who heard a little snoring in the background. Uh, <laughs> Roxy is is curled up right next to me. Bobby, so you can see the dog. Yeah, and there that she dog is. dog is full on asleep, which tells you everything you probably already know about how I, exciting. I was going to say, I think Roxy is, Roxy is, you know, Roxy is sympathetic, but this discussion of, of the nuances of the laws of war is a bit over her head. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's a sort of a version of voting with her feet. Um, can I say, I, I think we're, are, are, are we almost all the way through the sequence? Yeah, before we pivot to the U.S., I think we've touched on, I, I think we flagged most, not all, but most of the, the leading issues. And I hope we've at least conveyed a sense of, of why, from the law perspective, everything's not so obvious as some people sometimes seem to think. And and I would just add to that, that that also includes, right, the sort of um, growing hostility to the existence of a Jewish state. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's, I mean, I, 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 this, I wanted I mean, to ask you this earlier, but I didn't want to yeah. put you on the spot. I mean, you can put me on the spot. I mean, I was about to put myself on the spot. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll just say that I, I am. I've been amazed, and obviously, this is kind of hit closer to home for you than it does for me. But um, I'm just sort of stunned by, uh, to some extent, around the country, these glimpses we're getting of of people who they're not saying like, "Well, Hamas is terrible." But I've got this real problem with Likud policy or this and that. But it it's like a lot of kind of support for things, some of the horrific things that are in the Hamas charter. I and, and I would say like a really really depressing amount of anti-Semitism. And you know I don't I don't want to sort of be the anti-Semitism police and talk about which things are and which things are not anti-Semitic. But just the you know the sort of the inability of folks to distinguish between Netanyahu's government and Jewish people, <laughs> um, which I would think after four years of Trump, we'd be pretty good at distinguishing between they who lead our government and they who are represented by them. <laughs> it's, I mean, well, and, and it's, it is, I'm sorry for it. I really am. Um, and, and of course it must be said, I'm, I'm so sorry too, for the, the, the violence that's, Totally inappropriately directed, and you know there were those guys who were shot in Vermont the other day, yep, right? Uh, the three Palestinian students. Yeah, I know. Yep. And and so the the larger, more abstract observation that um, 
people engaging in violence or embracing hatred or, or supporting yes. violence. Um, there's, there's so much that seems to have been unleashed recently. Steve, do you think it's of the times over the past few years, this sort of larger division of people getting ever seemingly ever farther from each other, whether it's in politics, well, mainly in politics, but in other ways, and, and is, it, is it to some extent some kind of inevitable outgrowth of the, this larger set of divisions that seem to just burden our society and, and elsewhere around the world too? I think it's divisions. I think it's the media culture in which it is possible to surround yourself only with a very particular echo chamber of views. Um, I think it's you know a real sense that everything is black and white in a context in which there really is a ton of nuance. I mean, I think, you know, folks are surprised that, hey, you know, here's an issue in which not all Democrats agree. Like, that used to be kind of common in our politics, that there were issues that actually divided folks within parties, yeah, right? And, like another pernicious aspect of where our partisan politics have gone, that there's such an enforced uniformity, a uniformity within And it's like, you know, no, like we can, you know, we can, we can have two different views about something. I just... You know, I. I mean, I, I let me let me sort of qualify this a bit, right? So I'm Jewish. My whole family is Jewish. Karen is not just Jewish; she's half Israeli. Her father is Israeli. His family, most of his family, is still in Israel. They have, at least thus far, escaped the worst consequences of any of this. Although, of course, they have friends who haven't. Um, yeah. And so, you know, I, I'm I'm not coming at this as someone who with no sort of stake in in the game, but I just. You know, people have lost their fucking minds, and and I, I I think as horrifying as the attacks of October seventh were, the the piece that has really thrown me for a loop, Bobby, over the last you know seven eight weeks is just how how messy and sort of you know I don't know like hate promoting or hate perpetuating or hate sustaining so many folks' reactions to it have been. And Impressive. I think there's a lot of blame to go around. Again, like I would put, you know, Netanyahu and the Israeli government pretty high on the list. But like, man, y'all, like when did we when did we forget how to actually like, you know, talk and chew gum at the same time? It's a, it's a very sad time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I really and, and worry. It me, and it makes me even more sort of nervous about next year, right? And about sort of, you know, are we closer to violence surrounding an election, right? Than maybe we thought we were. You know, that observation concerns me as well, that um, there is a baseline level of national security that with lots of very prominent uh, exceptions in American history have, we've always uh, been comparatively lucky to enjoy involving the relative scarcity of violence in order amidst ordinary politics. Again, plenty of exceptions, but compared to other places in the modern era, it's, it's been quite good here for a long time. Um, that is, that's a genie that you don't get back in the bottle very easily once it gets out. And I do worry about next year. Yep. Um, well, look, another thing that spins out of this is us forces in the, yeah. in the Middle East. Um, it's all Biden's fault, Bobby. Uh, oh, is it? Uh, yes, Biden. Biden apparently is against the ceasefire that he helped to broker. I, 
the uh, the thing that was on my mind here is uh, the the various attacks that what seem to be Iranian proxy forces yes. in the region have uh, launched at U.S. forces. I know at least one person died of of complicate like I think cardiac arrest amidst one of those attacks, and then there's been at least last time I checked several dozen, if not at least three dozen, if not four dozen, serious to to more than serious injuries. Um, to U.S. service members and personnel, the United States has, on a handful of occasions now, conducted airstrikes against uh, locations. As I think, by and large, they've been locations where we think that the groups responsible for carrying out these attacks either uh, have some weapons storage or some other infrastructure. And you know, this has set off a little bit of a domestic separation of powers, war powers discussion. Not much. Most people really aren't paying much attention to this, but it's our job to pay attention to it. So mm-hmm. let's, let's talk about that. Steve, from a uh, from a domestic law perspective, what's the right way to analyze this? What's the right way or what's the way that the government is surely analyzing yeah. it? You're right. Loaded question. Let's let's start with um, let me let me well we'll do it uh, QA style. Steve, is are these exercises of authority under the 2001 AUMF? I'm sure that is the Biden administration's position. All right, so how how can that work? What um, argument would they make? That at least some of these proxy forces are associated forces of Al Qaeda and its associated forces, and therefore fall under the auspices of the 2001 AUMF, as it's been interpreted by multiple courts, as it's been reaffirmed by Congress in the FY 2012 National Defense Authorization Act, um, and even though. The, the uses of force have a remarkably little connection to 9/11 shrug emoji. So I wonder, I wonder the, if I, really, the last the yeah. last part was me. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so shrug emoji. So I, I assume you would not in, read it that way, and and I think I would if they put that out there and said this is just these are associated forces, I'd object to that. I, I wouldn't agree with that interpretation, barring surprising information about who these Iranian IRGC proxy, you know local forces actually turned out to be, because I don't think you could run it through the Islamic State uh, shoot if you consider that one descending pathway from the 2001 AUMF. I, I very much doubt that they fit there. I mean, maybe, but I doubt it if it's really Iran-linked. Um, I would argue that you'd have to make the... You, you could do this as a corollary to the AUMF, maybe even the 2002. Um, oh, God. Yeah, or, or the... Or, yeah, going back a ways. But... You could either have it be a corollary to the AMF or an Article Two matter, but the idea would be: look, one way or the other, there's U.S. forces otherwise lawfully present in location X, and so these attacks are necessary to protect them. And these are these are force protection, self defense responses. Yeah. That I think is a, is a more plausible argument. And so if they do ever say anything, and maybe they have said something, but I haven't seen it. If they do say something about this, I think that would be the right way to. It is fascinating how like these kinds of episodes, as recently as the Obama administration, maybe even the Trump administration would have actually gotten a lot of public interest and attention. Like people like Charlie Savage would have been writing about it, right? Like, you know, Spencer Ackerman, I mean, you name it, like folks would have been sort of really, really pushing back, like, and, and, and Bobby demanding an explanation from the administration. And I haven't seen it. I'm looking, I, I know there's been at least one War Powers notification. Hold on, I think I got it here. Will it open? Was it within 60 days? No, just kidding. <laughs> Okay, here we go. I, 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 I got to figure out how to how to turn the warp my war powers joke into the title of this episode. Okay, here we go. 
two, uh, this is, I'm sure there's been a couple of these. Um, uh, October 26, 2023, uh, Secretary of Defense Austin put out this statement. Uh, today at President Biden's direction, oh, by the way, this, this is not a war powers notification. This is just a DOD statement, but let's look it's at a it. Press re- it's a press release. Yes. Today at President Biden's direction, U.S. military forces conducted self-defense strikes on two facilities in eastern Syria used by Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and affiliated groups. So note there, not just proxies, but IRGC, alleged IRGC no doubt, IRGC units. Uh, self-defense strikes response to a series of ongoing and mostly unsuccessful attacks against U.S. personnel. Um, is there anything of a legal nature stated here? These narrowly tailored strikes in self-defense were intended solely to protect and defend U.S. personnel in Iraq and Syria, distinct from the ongoing conflict between Israel and Hamas. Da, 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 da. Obviously, so that's not the the legal statement, but that, that certainly smacks of um, the self-defense theory. And of course, you know, I guess that raises the war powers. Let's see here. The thing I, the thing I clicked on just then was supposed to be Biden's letter to uh, the, to Congress under the war powers. In case you're new to the National Security Law podcast, what you're currently experiencing is the amount of preparation that Bobby and Steve <laughs> put into each episode. Ain't that the truth? Okay, here's the letter. Dear Mr. Speaker, dear Madam President, I'm going to look through this quickly to spot the legal claim intended to establish deterrence. Da, 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 da. I directed this military action consistent with my responsibility to protect United States citizens, both at home and abroad, in furtherance of the United States national security and foreign policy interests, pursuant to my constitutional authority, Article 2. They don't, they don't say that, let alone say it that way, but <laughs> Article 2. As Commander-in-Chief and Chief Executive and to conduct U.S. foreign relations. Necessary oh, yes, the foreign relations war power. Well, that's uh, okay. So there you have it. So the administration's position seems to be that it's in Article Two uh, force protection self defense uh, theory growing out of the uh, the attacks on forces, which you know actually, by the way, like I think that's absolutely correct, and that's the right answer. You don't really need to hang it on the AUMF to explain why the forces are there. So uh, there you go. I will just say that I think. Not for the first time and not for the last time. The the extent to which each one of these episodes just furthers this drift of power, you know, it's it's the it's the frog in the pot of hot water, right? Like, you know That frog's been boiled a long, long time. Yes, the frog has been boiling for a long, long time and can no longer tell how hot it is. The uh you know, some listeners who know about as we've been talking about the sixty day I yes. timeline on the war resolution may think like, oh, okay, so in 60 days, the administration has to, what, stop episodically responding seriatim to these attacks? Th- this is a great situation to highlight the limits of the, the clock model. The forces are otherwise there. And, now, they're not think, there. and they're not there as part of hostilities. Well, I guess the, the administration would say, if pressed, I think, like, yeah. no, no, they, if they weren't there as part of hostilities already, it would get kind of interesting because under the war powers framework, Right, right, they're introducing now, them into, now you've yeah. obviously got the demonstration that hostilities are, right. if not ongoing, uh, recurringly imminent. Yes, uh, and so therefore you've got to get the authorization. But the administration is like, oh no, no, we're otherwise already authorized to be there um, by extension of the AMF as part of our counter-Islamic state efforts. 
and the the emergence or the intrusion of the IRGC into this model doesn't change that and sort of force us to be kicked out as a result. Or at least I think that's the position they'd probably take. Um, and it kind of goes to show you that even with the War Powers Revolution, even if they had a little bit of teeth into it, which it never really does, um, the the bootstrapping effect that comes from U.S. overseas deployments in areas of exposure, um, as long as you got a situation like this, where it's episodic, where we're using, using force, uh, the War Powers Resolution just doesn't seem well designed to, to address this situation. You had me at the War Powers Resolution isn't well designed. Yes. <laughs> so it's quite a bold claim, wasn't it? Gosh, John John Hart Ely a long time ago wrote a series of law review articles that turned into his really lovely book War and Responsibility, um, and the title of the law review articles was even better. The title of the law review articles was something to the effect of "Suppose Congress wanted a War Powers Act that worked," <laughs> and it was basically <laughs> an attempt on Ely's part to document all of the ways in which the statute was set up to fail and how you actually could, if you wanted to, write a more toothful war powers resolution. Um, what's really great about that title is it's both funny yes. and, and so perfectly actually not kidding. Yes. By and large, there's no hunger or desire for a war powers resolution. It actually works. There's as, as Amy Ziegard among others has, has documented this, the incentive structure for the member wrong. does not favor them having to own these issues ultimately. But but also that there's widespread consensus that it doesn't work. No, exactly. Well, that too. Yes. No one, no one, no, no one argues. I don't. Does anyone argue that it, oh, it works great? Uh, I mean, the White House. I guess maybe, maybe OLC. Right. OLC. Yeah. We love <laughs> the War Powers Resolution. Lovely. Yeah, so. Perfect. Oh man. Well, well I, I, it's just I. I feel the sense of like fatigue talking about this issue because like I still think it is important constitutional terrain to fight for that. You know, they're really that it's not obvious to me that a proper understanding of the original understanding of the war powers would include the president having the unilateral power in cases like this. But there's so much, as you were saying, boiled froggy water under the bridge. Ooh, episode title Boiled Froggy Water Under the Bridge. Writing that down. Or if we really want to start mixing metaphors, Boiled Froggy Water Under the Bridge Downtown. That's where I drew some blood. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> um, well, since you don't seem boiled, exaggerated boiled enough, froggy water, Boiled froggy water under the bridge. Okay. I think we have an episode title. Okay. Uh, can we journey to Trumplandia for a moment? I'm so exasperated by... Would so, you rather skip Trumplandia and go straight to the frivolity? No, I'm exasperated. I'm just... I'm, 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 there's a line in a gladiator, right, where Joaquin Phoenix says, I'm terribly vexed. I'm terribly <laughs> vexed. Oh, have you seen Napoleon? I have not seen Napoleon, mm. but all right. So, so I'm. Have you? Yes. Yeah, I was gonna. Okay, okay. Wait. Wait. So, without giving it away, so I've read like eleven reviews that hated it, and one from Manola Dargis of all people who really liked it. That's are you on team? Are you on team Manola, or are you on team everybody else? Team everybody else. Okay. However, if if you read enough negative reviews, then maybe. Maybe Manola read those 11 negative reviews and they thought, hey, it's not so bad. I mean, when was the last time that Manola Dargis was the only, you know, highly visible movie reviewer who liked the movie? I don't know. I'll, I won't spoil anything, but I, w- I will say if you're going to go see it, lower your expectations. Yeah. No, I mean, it's my, my sense is that it's, it's, it's pretty and completely devoid of thematic elements. There's, I'll just say this. There's, as near as I can tell, and I managed to stay awake 
the entire time, uh, zero attempt to explain in any way yes, anything. where this guy came from, what actually got him to the stage he got. How to, he was so popular. Or just any of it. I mean, yes. it, it's kind of portrayed as like, this just seems like everyone would hate this guy and so yet. much. Yep, and yet, yep, yep. yeah. Now, they missed um, so, a chance to make him a Braveheart antihero. There was a way to do this. It could have been like, oh, man, this is amazing. And there's there's a story about this guy. It's compelling. But that wasn't it. But anyways, back to Trumplandia. You were mentioning that we've got some uh, gag order. Uh, so there are two. So there, there are. There are. I mean, there's. it's really hard to keep track of all the Trump litigation. I think it is safe to say that it falls into three real Bucket, well, four bucket, four bucket, three, three buckets. So, bucket one is the Florida document theft case before Judge Cannon, in which the principal development over the last sixty days has been yet further efforts by Judge Cannon to slow walk the entire process, um, to the surprise of I think absolutely no one. Um, there's the, I guess there really are four. There's the criminal case in, well, five. Okay. There's a criminal case in Fulton <laughs> County. Long night. Right. There's the Fulton County criminal case where the biggest development in, this is, this is the sort of the, the state law attempt to prosecute Trump for the fraudulent elector scheme. Um, where, I, Bobby, I think the biggest developments over the last 60 days have been a bunch of Trump's alleged co-conspirators pleading guilty. Um, in exchange for signing cooperation agreements. Do you, are any of them in a strong position if they are testifying for the state to inculpate Donald Trump for firsthand, you know, do they have firsthand knowledge of things he said or did? That's an interesting question. And, you know, I mean, Jenna Ellis is one of them. Kenneth Chesbro is one of them. Uh, you know, maybe, Um but maybe that maybe Fonnie Willis's plan is to roll them up to someone who does, right? I mean, so that's okay. Then there's the New York civil fraud and criminal fraud stuff going on, where Trump keeps picking fights with the trial judge, um, yeah, and 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 sort of threatening the trial judge and his clerk. And there's been all this stuff about the threats that the trial judge and clerk have been receiving from Trump supporters offline. Um, then there's the D.C. This is the special prosecutor prosecution, the Jack Smith case in D.C., which is the January, the the most January sixth of the cases, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, where the real fight actually that's currently brewing is over the gag order that Judge Chutkin imposed on President Trump, um, and there was an emergency appeal to the D.C. Circuit. The D.C. Circuit issued a temporary stay of the gag order pending a very expedited oral argument that argument happened before thanksgiving i think we'll probably get a decision bobby pretty soon um and my read of the oral argument is that the panel was likely to narrow the gag order but not um expunge it not wipe it away which of course could send that issue to the supreme court Hmm. um and then there are the disqualification cases um and the two that i've been following i think the big two right now are the minnesota one and the Colorado one. And in Colorado, we had this remarkable ruling by the state trial judge who held that, yes, Trump did in fact engage in insurrection in his actions on and before January 6th, but that Trump was nevertheless not disqualified under Section 3 
because he is not technically an, quote, officer of the United States, unquote, um, right? Based on a very, very fine text reading of the fact that the president takes a slightly different oath than every other federal officer. And the language of the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment mirrors the, the oath that everyone else takes, but not the pre- The president does not ever say that he's taking an oath to support the Constitution. <laughs> has this question never, has any, obviously not the, the 14th Amendment question, but the status of the presidency as an officer of the United States? It's come up that- in the, it came up in the Emoluments Clause litigation. Um, there are two people who have written tens and tens and tens of thousands of words on why the president is not an officer of the United States. Um, I have never found that analysis persuasive. I do not find it persuasive now. I think the problem is, is that if you're the Colorado district judge, you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. Because on the one hand, like you really think Trump, you know, shouldn't be like, you want to say Trump acted badly. On the other hand, like, it would be seismic. I would dare say it would be even worse than seismic, right? To hold that Trump literally can't be on the ballot. I mean, I think that would be really, really, even though, I mean, I don't think anyone listening to this podcast will be surprised to hear that I have no sympathy for former President Trump um, and have a really hard time understanding the people who do. But like, it seems to me that like the, you know, one of the worst case scenarios for next year is Trump losing after he was kept off the ballot in a handful of states, right? And, you know, the people who are going to understand that best of all are the justices on the Supreme Court who now could be faced with a lower court decision that's going to require them to either say, yes, Trump is disqualified or no, he's not, either because, right, um, he did not actually engage in insurrection or because he's not an officer of the United States. Oh, like, man. There, there are no good solutions here yeah. other than every court that's one step below the Supreme Court finding a way to rule, you know, to, finding a way to not force the U.S. Supreme Court to take this case. Because and there's no yeah, chance that there'd be so much uniformity that it would. Well, and, and the problem them. is, like, I mean, and, and you know what Trump will do, like any ruling by the U.S. Supreme Court that he wins on, right? He's going to turn around and say, look, the Supreme Court just held that, you know, January 6th was fine. The Supreme Court just held that, like, I didn't do anything wrong. The Supreme Court just held that my impeachment was bogus. I mean, like, it's just all, all of these outcomes are bad. Everything about it's a mess. And I continue to agree with what you said earlier that this coming years, it's going to be a bad one. It's going to be tough. I mean, you know, almost, maybe, maybe. Almost inevitably, but. Look, I, maybe, I'm maybe we should bet. Maybe we should bet on our number of episodes for next year. Yeah, take the. Uh, well, I, I, I have no standing left to predict. No, you don't. Numbers. Um, all right, I, I think we should pivot to frivolity because it's it's been heavy enough up to this point. What do you think? I just want to say one more thing about the disqualification cases. Like, I actually, I, I've gotten into a whole bunch of fights with people who I really respect a lot on the insurrection question. Like, I, you know, I really do think that you know, there's a very, very good argument that Trump did, in fact, engage in insurrection through various of his actions on January 6th. Um, I just think that there's no clean way to get from that belief to a sort of viable, like, widely perceived as legitimate result, other than Trump being on the ballot in all 50 states and the District of Columbia next November and getting his ass kicked. Right. So so in short, 
whatever the merits of the legal and factual analysis, there's yes. a separate question about political stability and and a reasonably stable path forward for the country that is not driven by the legal factual analysis. And it's going to put the U.S. And, and, and if one of these lower courts does actually hold that he is disqualified, it's going to put the Supreme Court in such a just no win position. Well, um, on that kind of like the kind of like the New York Giants. Sorry about your job. Who regularly find themselves in no win positions. Although they act well, the, so the good news this week, I mean, the, their last two games have been against two teams that are even worse than they are. So, yeah, those Patriots. Ooh. So they beat the Commanders. And I would say they actually beat the Commanders. And then they just didn't out lose against the Patriots. They didn't get out lost. Um, yeah, we've come a brutal. long way from, you know, the first, um, the very, very first football season that Karen and I were dating was the 18 and 0 Patriots against the Giants in the Super Bowl. Oh my goodness. Okay. And quarterbacks was, back uh, then? Uh, what's that? Quarterbacks. Was, that was Tom Brady, not Drew and, and, and Eli. Yeah. And, uh, which and, brings and, us, which brings us to the glorious arrival of Arch Manning. Well, so there the you go. I was, I was, Lawrence. I was getting you to the segue. <laughs> Thank you, my friend. So that Arch Manning, was- nephew of Eli. And, you know, it was a handful of plays late in the game, but, but he certainly so, looked so, so for those who have no idea what the hell we're talking about. Um, the, University, now. the University of Texas football team, which is now the number one, the regular season Big 12 champion and the number one seed in the Big 12 championship game this Saturday against Oklahoma State, um, was up by so much against Texas Tech at home on Friday night that uh, Coach Sarkeesian put in not their backup quarterback, but the quarterback of the future, um, true freshman Arch Manning, who is the third generation of the Manning quarterback dynasty. Grandson of Archie, nephew, nephew of Eli, Eli. Eli, son of Cooper. And uh, he's he's been sort of heralded as like, the greatest prospect we've had. Well, of course, people are saying this about Ewers, Quinn Ewers, say. current quarterback. Uh, certainly, certainly everybody's been very excited here. And he legit, he looked real good considering the limited window he had to try to do anything. <laughs> Primarily, the main thing he did was he ran for a first down. And UT quarterbacks haven't done a lot of running from the pocket without yeah. looking like they were going to break something in a long time. So anyway, so so apparently the the future is bright, although that future is in the SEC. Um, oh, hey, which, yeah. Which, mark your calendars. October 19th, I saw earlier, Georgia, Georgia. will be here. It's going to be so fun. And we're going to A&M Saturday after Thanksgiving next year. Yeah, Saturday. They're doing it wrong. It's a- I know. It's supposed it's to be Friday. Friday. I know. But that'll um, be fun. All right. So so really quickly, Bobby, a little bit of sports ball before we get to holiday songs. Um, so I know what you want to happen. What is your prediction for what happens this weekend in the conference championship games? And does Texas make its way into the, the, the college football playoff? All right. Some things have to go very, very yeah. specifically. Okay, first of all, I, I do believe Texas will win. It will do its part by beating Yes, Oklahoma that seems lowest hanging fruit, right? I think Texas is probably going to beat – especially, like, it won't hurt that Texas is playing before almost everybody else. Yeah. So then you got – then Florida State and Louisville in the ACC. I think so I think that's the, I think that's the big game. Like, I they think – can knock them off, don't you think? Absolutely. And I think Texas is I, – I, I think Texas is best chance of getting in – is with a Louisville upset, Louisville upset of Florida mm-hmm. State in the ACC title game because Texas one loss SEC champion Texas 
obviously gets in over one loss ACC non-champion Florida State. Now, of course, right? still Big 12 champion at that point. Not All right. No, no. So so here's my math, right? So I assume Michigan's going to beat Iowa. Yeah. Right? Um, right. Washington re-beats Oregon. Well, no, 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 no. Wait. So what I was going to say is I assume that the winner of the Pac-12 game, right? So Oregon's currently ranked ahead of Texas. I assume, Bobby, that the winner of the Pac-12 game is in. It's in. Okay. Right? So you got Oregon. You got Michigan. Right, yeah, and then there, Georgia to takes me, care of business. They're, so they're in. So, so right. If so, so Georgia takes care of business. They're in, which leaves only right leapfrogging Florida State. Um, wait, and 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 that right. Wait, we're missing somebody here, aren't we? No, because no, Oregon. We're just we're just missing Ohio State, right? And so the oh, right, prospect, but, but would they right. would they leave? They could Ohio not. State they, out? they could not. They could not put in non-conference champion one loss Ohio State and leave out conference champion one loss Texas. I just don't see it happening. They certainly shouldn't. Yeah. Okay. Now what so, if Alabama beats? Oh wait, wait, wait. So 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 if Georgia wins, I think the only path right is Florida State losing. Right. 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 Barring barring crazy upsets in yeah, yeah. I or bar, right barring a crazy upset in the Big Ten game. I'm with you. Right. If Alabama wins, right, then I think that cracks the door open a bit further. That I think the only way Texas gets in with Florida State winning, right, is if Alabama beats Georgia. And boy, is that going to be a fight. Like, you know, one loss SEC champion Alabama with the best win of the year, knocking off the two-time defending national champion undefeated Georgia versus one loss Texas, which beat Alabama. Which beat them at home, I know. We'll, we'll in, in be, we'll be I know. punished for the weakness of the Big Twelve. We'll be punished for the uh, timing of that victory coming early versus. So, so I'm going to be like, well, right. Alabama was still getting it together, and now in the in the playoff right. committee always says like it's right now. Who are you? As so this team. goes back to where I end, which is I really think the only way Texas could feel good about its chances, barring an Iowa upset of Michigan, yeah. is if. Louisville beats Florida State. Yeah. And I think that's very possible. I mean, Florida State, you know, was locked in a death match for three quarters with an entirely mediocre Florida team this weekend. No, I agree. They need to get knocked off. So, so they probably won't. It's going to be some whole complete. But so I'm going to be rooting heavily for Louisville. Now, as you know, I have one set of conflicting loyalties here, which is I will also be rooting for Michigan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you can, you so, can aspire towards a UT Michigan uh, matchup, which would be well, great fun, and they're and they're playing they're playing next year too. Yeah, it we're, and should should we say it? No, we're, we're okay. No, yeah, should uh, we? okay. I guess we are saying it. So no, um, it. plans are underway for a live taping in Ann Arbor next September, the day before the Michigan Texas game at the Big House. Barb, have you reserved a room for all of us to do this yes. show on campus? Barb McQuaid is our hero. Yeah, um, Barb. But I did. I will say that I was in a meeting today with the president of the University of Texas at Austin, Jay Hartzell, and I may have said to him that you know I just want the record to show that if Michigan and Texas end up playing in the playoff, my loyalties unfortunately have to go with my parents <laughs> over I'm my sure employer. That. Yeah, you know. I, I mean, we'll, we'll see when my when my salary comes through for next year. That's right. um, Blame him, not me. Yes, but I think it'll be interesting, and I think Texas has had a great year, no matter what happens. Oh, this it's weekend. been awesome. It's been really great to see them. But also. Go Cardinals. Yeah, that's right. Go Louisville. I know Seriously. nothing about that team other than they need to win that game. Um, speaking of things I know nothing about, holiday, holiday music. music. 
Actually, I we, were, so we were going to do holiday movies, but we've done that one like every single holiday season, and it just devolves into a debate about well, not even a debate because I think no, I agree, agree completely about Die Hard. Um, so, in the in, in an attempt to avoid the annual debate about die, the annual non-debate about Die Hard, Bobby, what are what are your sort of couple of top holiday songs? All right, friends, buckle up. Let's let's go back and forth. We'll, we'll each do five songs, and we'll take turns adding songs into the hopper to make the official national security law podcast holiday playlist. Ooh, I like that. All right. Uh, Very official. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to try to make So we each get five. We each get five. We each get five. Okay. So there's going to be 10 songs on this list. All right. Are you going to keep notes? No. All right. Hold on. I'm going to keep notes because we may actually have to circulate this playlist because there'll be so much demand for it. So much. Um, I'll start dozens, with one. Dozens, dozens of people are waiting for this game. To I'm going to start with one that I bet you have not heard. Shelley King, Christmas in Austin. Is that coming through? Yes. It's finally cool enough to wear a sweater. Are you waiting for? We're probably violating copyright law right now, just FYI. Uh, I think Shelley won't object. Okay. It's on the Holiday Ham Jam, Ham being the Health Alliance for Austin Musicians, uh, album from Forever Go. It's a very Austin take. So there, there's my first one. Okay. Um, I've already given away my first one, but it's uh, Darlene Love, um, Christmas Baby Please Come Home, with oh, one man. of my favorite saxophone solos of all time. Ooh. I do like a good saxophone solo. Yep. Yep. Baby Please Come Home. Okay. that That's pretty good. You, you, um, know, you know which song I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No. Babe, please come home. <laughs> I like the Steve Vladek version, personally, yeah, the best. Well, yeah. All right. Who there's a, uh, here's another one I like a bunch. Um, there's a version of God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen with, from Bare Naked Ladies. Remember mm. that band? Yeah. And then that, it's like, Did you just ask me if I remember Bare Naked Ladies? I don't know. Do you? <laughs> All right, it's so good, and there and I think this version blends in Sarah McLaughlin. Um, Ooh, I forget what she blends in. Now you're speaking my music. Yeah, that's right. If you're like, did you ever go to Lilith Fair? Did I ever go to Lilith Fair? How many times did I go to Lilith Fair? Is the real question. <laughs> that's awesome. Oh man, is I mean, oh, I, I I got to see, gosh, it must have been at Meriwether Post Pavilion. The first year, I mean, I went both. I went to, to to two years in a row, but like the first year, where the where the final act after Sarah McLaughlin's solo act was Sarah McLaughlin, the Indigo Girls, Jewel, and somebody else singing "The Water Is Wide," and it was like the coolest fracking thing. That's awesome. Did I? All right. What's your number right. two? My number two, I think, is a crowd pleaser. Ah, so this is Christmas. I believe the song is technically called Happy Xmas. <laughs> All right. John Lennon. It was, that was just John Lennon, right? Wasn't nope, people. it's John Lennon and Yoko Ono. Oh. Hmm. Don't forget Yoko. Happy Xmas, yeah. By the way, uh, have you, do you have an opinion on Now, now and Then, the pseudo new Beatles song. I have not, I have not heard it. I am embarrassed to say. Oh, okay. You know, they, they got the old track of John Lennon singing mm. and then they kind of did some upgrades digitally and then got the, uh, got Paul and 
Ringo mm-hmm. in there. And then somehow I'm not sure how they got a pseudo George Harrison part, but anyways, give a lesson. It's okay. Um, all right. Um, I am a fan also of the John Denver and the Muppets 12 days of Christmas. Mm, there you go. <laughs> so. On the first day of Christmas. Granted, it starts kind of slow, but the Miss Piggy, but the Muppets, the, the, the Muppets pick it up. part in particular. Okay. Pretty good. Pretty good. All right. So that's your third. Yeah. All right. Um, my third began as a Saturday Night Live skit. Oh. Hmm. Oh, oh. Is it Adam Sandler? Oh, boy, is it. Play it. This uh, is a song that, uh, there's a lot of Christmas songs out there, and uh, not too many Hanukkah songs, so. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> go, to, go to song for all those nice little Jewish kids who don't get to hear any Hanukkah songs. Here we go. I love it. And I just started right off the bat with rhyming yarmulke and Hanukkah. Yeah, it's so great. All right, oh, that's, that's my so third. God, he, was a ge- he is a genius. Um, so some people hate this song. I enjoy it so much. Uh, the Band-Aid song, Do They Know It's Christmas. Mm. I like trying to figure out who the different singers are. All right, should I actually give it a, you know. You don't, you don't have to. There you go. Some people really wince when they hear that. It's Christmas time. All right, you're up. All right, my fourth is also in the frivolous Judaism category. I'm going to play the song, and I want to see if you can figure out who's singing it. The song is called The Song is called Puppy for Hanukkah. Is it Snoop? It is not Snoop. <laughs> what is it? It is the actor who plays Thomas Jefferson and Monsieur de Lafayette oh. in the original Broadway cast of Hamilton. It is David Diggs. That's cool. Okay. What's that one called? By the way, is Jewish. Uh, I think I knew that. What's the name of the song? Puppy for Hanukkah. Puppy for Hanukkah. It's a good listen. Okay. Let's see. My final pick. There's a lot of pressure here. You're not going to beat mine. Okay. This is an obscure one. Are you ready? Yes. Although there there was some kind of holiday Bing Crosby type show where late in his life where him and David Bowie staged. Have you ever seen this? You got to look it up on YouTube that there's a knock on the door and it's David Bowie coming over to Bing Crosby's house inexplicably. And then they sing this sort of mashup of little drummer boy and peace on earth. Oh, that's and cool. It is, it is seventies gold. Can you imagine the conversation between those two? All right. Bring it home with something better than that. Okay. So with an honorable mention to to Christmas Eve Sarajevo by the Trans-Siberian Orchestra, uh-huh. which I think is actually probably the best modern orchestral holiday performance, it would not be a top 10 holiday music playlist 
for the National Security Podcast without some subject matter crossover. Can you hear it? (laughs) Oh, wait. It's coming. What's it going to be? Maybe the title of this episode should be This Episode Violates Copyright Law. <laughs> Do you recognize it yet? Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. It's Christmas at Ground Zero. There's music in the air. <laughs> this is Weird Al. Oh my god. What this is, is Christmas at Ground Zero by Weird Al Yankovic. You gotta be kidding me. I've never The radio heard just let I us know that this Al. is not a test. Oh my god. Weird Everywhere Al. the atom bombs are dropping. <laughs> I love it. I, I I applaud your selection of Weird Al to bring it home. That is on, not just Weird fun. Al, but substantively appropriate Weird Al. No, exactly. You really landed the plane there. I'm impressed. Thank you. Oh my um, god! Because oh. what is so amazing about that song is it's like this, you know, jolly, you know, gaiety, right, Christmas song where the words are about, you know, the end of the world as we know it from nuclear war. <laughs> Leave it to Weird Al. <laughs> I can't believe that you, who I think of as a Weird Al connoisseur, um, had never heard Christmas at Ground Zero. I, you know, my, my Weird Al knowledge is kind of confined to the cassette tape sort mm-hmm. of window of time. Like the mid-80s, like bad, uh, eat it. Or, sorry, yeah. fat, eat it. Like yeah. I, I lost, lost on, on Jeopardy. Jeopardy. Yeah. Yep, 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 that era. I'll take potpourri. <laughs> All right. Um, I think it doesn't get more frivolous than what we just did. So well done. Can I just say that I, I think I, I mean I think Christmas at Ground Zero kind of blew it all away. Yeah, um, <laughs> thank you very much. Insert sound effect. All right. Well, <laughs> hopefully the the prospect of Weird Al Yankovic singing us off to a nuclear war is an appropriate one to end our probably hopefully not our holiday episode. See, on. It's good though that we did this much holiday stuff because it's entirely possible. Just in case, just in case, it's sixty days until we record again. Well, let's let's hereby pledge that whatever else happens, we will we will get at least one more episode in in 2023. I mean, I'm I'm down for that, but you you really want to make a bet? <laughs> I'm not going double or nothing. <laughs> oh, or maybe I should actually. That would not I, that would not be a good. You're bet not for me. accepting that. I'm not accepting those terms. All yeah. right. Um, although I would accept terms where I get a 75 million dollar buyout. Um, just to get time. that in there at the you buzzer. Got, you got you got to lose a fair number of games to get that. How about losing Supreme Court cases? Does that count? <laughs> <laughs> I'm tempted to say you're overqualified, but that would just be mean. It, seriously. All right. He is at Bobby Chesney. I am at NSL Podcast. That pug you hear snoring in the background actually is at Roxanna the Pug. Um, and uh, what did I say? I'm, I'm Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. Stay safe out there, especially if Christmas is at ground zero. Adios.